0: Hey everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. Today I have with me a colleague in the Kansas Legislature, Heather Meyer, who's from Overland Park. She represents House District 29, and uh, she has an interesting backstory all around. But the reason I wanted to visit with her is because I read uh, a column that she had written for the Kansas City Star talking about her experience with diabetes. And so we started talking, and I I, I hadn't realized before that Heather was type 1 diabetic, and any of you that know me know that my son Mitchell is also a type 1 diabetic. So this is an issue that I care about uh, quite a bit, and I think it's important for people to know and understand what type 1 diabetics have to go through throughout their life, particularly if they don't have access to healthcare. So Heather, thanks for coming on and agreeing to talk with uh, thank you. me about something very personal.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to really lend a voice to this issue, so.
0: Well, thank you. Um, tell me, how how old were you when you were diagnosed? I was 12. 12 years old, that's about the same age that Mitch was diagnosed. Yeah. Talk with me a little bit about kind of what you went through when you got when you got that diagnosis, and kind of what that means when you're a 12 year old kid, and now you sure. find out that you can't process food properly.
1: Yeah, so that was pretty crazy. Um, actually, my dad, even though he is a, or he was a type one diabetic, um, he did not pick up on any of the signs or symptoms. Um, he just, he honestly, he told me in the end that he thought maybe I had an eating disorder or something. Um, and what ended up happening was um, I slipped into a coma and that's how I was diagnosed with type one. Um, I spent about three months in Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City um, where they had to get my body back into shape and uh, retrain me on how to eat and how to live. And it was just absolutely um Devastating, honestly. I'd seen my dad, you know, taking shots and doing what he needed to do. But when it was with me and trying to uh, manage that with my schedule, with my friends, trying to figure out, you know, what I can and can't do at this point and trying to give myself shots every day. It was just, it was, it was wild and it was difficult. And, um, you know, there were some times where I would just straight up refuse to take my shots or test my blood sugar because I was afraid to, Mm -hmm. or I just wanted to be a normal kid. Um, But I was really thankful uh, for a lot of the, the nurses and the doctors at Children's Mercy who really taught me the things that I needed to know. Um, because I didn't know as I grew older that I would use everything that they taught me to make sure that I could continue to live mm-hmm. so
0: the amount of information that you get thrown at you when you're first diagnosed it, it's overwhelming isn't absolutely it? um, yeah we talked a little bit the other day about carb counting and calorie counting and mm-hmm. y- you almost have to memorize and you said you had you you kind yeah. of ran through some things like you told me an apple has,
1: it, for me, I have to take like a certain number of units for an apple, but like if I mix it with peanut butter, I have to, you know, reduce the number of units of insulin I take mm-hmm. and, you know, like pizza, the way that hits you is, you know, it depends on what toppings you have, what kind of crust style, you know, and you, so you have to really delicately um, figure out exactly what you're doing with your insulin and how to administer it, you know, or like say Chinese food or pasta um, or like a cheeseburger. Um, it's, it's, you know, everything hits you differently and you have to really know your body. It's
0: mentioning the pizza. I know in Mitch's case, and I think anybody who has a diabetic in the family knows that pizza is one of the deal breakers. It's so hard. And it's, it's because this weird combination of carbs and fats Mm -hmm. and proteins all together and and it changes the way your body absorbs But let's, on that, let's back up a little bit and just make sure. I think most people kind of have a concept of what a diabetic, what diabetes is or sure. what a diabetic uh, body does or doesn't do. Um, but it probably is worth making sure just to explain uh, what people do. do you, can you do that? Like, kind of what, what goes wrong in a person's body whenever they develop Type
1: one diabetes. Yeah, so basically, um, you know, there there are a lot of theories about how type one diabetes is triggered. I think the most common one right now is through an infection of some sort, Um, because type one is an autoimmune disease. So that means that. Our body, um, you know, attacked our beta cells basically and destroyed them thinking that it was a virus or a bacteria.
0: And the beta cells are what the pancreas sends out, right? Correct,
1: yeah. yeah. And and that's, you know, kind of how a normal person's pancreas operates is using those cells to deliver insulin to different parts of your body in the bloodstream and kind of trying to help digest those foods and everything. There's a whole lot of other things I'm not a doctor, but, um, you know, with enough lived experience, I guess I kind of understand the basics of it. But um, basically what happens is that your pancreas stops making insulin in the end, and um, it will not regain uh, the ability to do so. Um, unlike uh, type 2 diabetics who do sometimes produce, you know, insulin on their own. They just maybe um, have some other metabolic conditions affecting the way that they can process their insulin. Um, we just don't even have that opportunity, so we have to have insulin to live. Yeah,
0: and yeah. that's the term. Uh, like, not every not every type two diabetic is in, takes insulin, but every type one diabetic is insulin dependent.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it yeah.
0: Ha- has to have it. Uh, so. When you were 12 and you're diagnosed, and you talked about like having times where you refused refuse to check your blood sugar, mm-hmm. refuse to take your shots, that's not an uncommon thing with kids who get diagnosed. And, and, it, and it used to be called juvenile diabetes because right. right, it's almost always yeah. uh, comes on at an early age, either, I mean, in some cases as early as two or three, mm-hmm. um, but almost always by the teenage years, yeah. there, there's a, on an onset. Um, but that's a pretty common thing, right? Like yes. the, the kids get frustrated with the fact that they have to do this they are like at a time in your life when you're already hypersensitive to being mm-hmm. normal, right. quote, unquote, you now have this very clear behavior that you have to do every day to stay alive that yeah. reminds you just how abnormal you are.
1: That's right. And, you know, sometimes I would hide it. Like I'd hide the fact that I had a low blood sugar, which would, you know, cause me to almost pass out. I'd be like, oh, no, I'm just hot. Because when you get a low blood sugar, a lot of times you get sweaty. Mm-hmm. And you say, no, I'm just hot. But, um you know, then sneak off somewhere and try to chug some orange juice or something discreetly. Um, I was, I had the opportunity through scholarship to go to, I think it was like diabetes kids camp. And I can't recall exactly where it was because I was pretty young at the time, of course. But um, it was a camp, it was like a week long camp for kids with type one diabetes. And um, when I was there, like we were all the same age and I met a lot of different kids who were struggling with the same issues and they kind of put us into groups so that we could talk through, um, some of what we were going through. So that was, that was helpful. Um, but of course it didn't solve the issue because as you go, you know, through your teen years, you still want, want to be normal and just like a normal kid. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was very tough. And I think that that's a very common, common thing that happens. Um, uh, well, we can get into that a little bit more later, um, but there you know, there are some other things that happen, I think, specifically with um, female type 1 diabetics at that age, too. There's um, some eating disorders that go along with it because there is a significant amount of weight gain that occurs after you begin your insulin therapy, too, and so that can cause some issues um, as you grow older.
0: I hadn't considered that. Of course, my, Mitch is my son, so I, I've seen it from that perspective, but I mm-hmm. hadn't considered that it might be different for females in that situation, but I do remember, it it reminded me when you said that you slipped into a coma because everybody missed the signs. Mm -hmm. We didn't know what to look for either and I think I told you the other day that Mitch's blood sugar was over 900 when he ended up up in the hospital and I had him at a friend's house trimming bushes that day and she called me and said "He's, uh, he's, he's getting tired, he keeps asking for water. Um, the other thing that happened uh, that, that, that was bad about it coming on that time—it's bad at any time—but yeah. uh, he was in middle school. He was in track. He lost a bunch of weight, but we thought he's growing. He's right. You know, in the throes of puberty here.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: he's in track, so he's getting exercise. He was kind of spacey. We were getting reports of that, and we thought, well, he's a teenage boy, so mm-hmm. he's just so all these things in our mind looked like. This is just normal middle school behavior. Yeah. Um, And then when we figured out what it was, then it explained a lot of things that we hadn't caught before.
1: Yeah, that happened with me, too. Um, You know, for a while there, they thought maybe I had some disciplinary issues. I kept falling asleep in class. Um, I was having a real hard time paying attention. Um, Completely drift off you know, and, and they thought, well, she's just, you know, going through her teenage stuff and, you know, puberty and all of that. And it was definitely not the case when I was diagnosed and I went into a coma. I am five foot nine. Um, at the time, I think I was just a little over five, seven as, as a 12 year old. Um, I weighed 72 pounds. Wow. So I was literally skin and bones and, you know, I had been, um, vomiting profusely and my dad thought he honestly thought I was bulimic because when you're also another one of the symptoms is it's like your insatiable thirst but insatiable hunger can't get right you can't get full and so he thought that I was I was binging and purging and binging and purging and he had you know um reached out to some folks to talk about that and you know we didn't make any progress on that until and then all of a sudden I was in the hospital so yeah
0: yeah it's an easy it it's, it's such an overwhelming disease, but it's such an easy disease to miss. It really is. You, you just, unless you have some experience, you don't even know what to look for. And even then, you don't yeah. always know where it might seem like something else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so you you go through your teenage years with, with diabetes and you move into adulthood, but mm-hmm. I, th- I think when we talked the other day, you, you, weren't, you didn't have insurance as a child.
1: Not usually, no. You know, there was a point in time where I did have health insurance through Medicaid mm-hmm. um, because, you know, kids were eligible. Um, but my dad took a job um, where he was making quite a bit more money, which was good for us. Right. Um, because he we I would classify as a working poor family. Mm-hmm. Um, and but with that, um, you know, his his company wouldn't offer us insurance because. Uh, it was too expensive for them to insure diabetics, especially um, two of them in one family. Because your dad was diabetic. Yeah, too. my dad was type 1 diabetic as well. And so they basically said, no, you know, we, we're sorry, but we can't offer you insurance. So um, neither of us had insurance during that time period, I think. Uh, there were maybe a couple of years, I think, until I was about 14 years old wow. that I had insurance, and that was it.
0: And during that time, were you able to... I mean, did that change the way you managed your care?
1: It Well, I imagine it did, yeah. I mean, I, I don't remember it super well, but I know that I I didn't ever feel like I was worried about having insulin. Um, I always knew what my blood sugar was. I felt like I was a pretty good diabetic considering I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, as good as you're going to be at that age. Um, but after that, you know, I remember the struggle was real. Like we, my dad and I would, you know, because we – we both had insulin needs. We would share a bottle of insulin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we would at one point, I hate to say this, but it's true. At one point we were like sterilizing our plastic syringes because we couldn't afford to go get another bag of them. Right. Um, so
0: you're probably just boiling them. Absolutely. Right on the
1: stove. Yeah. yeah. On the stove. And, you know, we know that's not safe and not effective and, um, can cause a lot of, uh, scar tissue, but we had to do what we had to do. Mm-hmm. um, you know, and it was really difficult. And the insulin they offered at the time was not that great either. Um, and, it, I mean, it was much cheaper than it is now. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it was not something that was very easy um, to control your blood sugars with. So we were constantly rationing, and we were sharing, and we were just doing what we could to survive, and it was tough.
0: And, and that that's not terribly uncommon. I mean, a lot of diabetics do that. The insulin yeah. costs are, are high, um, the supplies are mm-hmm. ex- they're expensive as well. Um, and there's a lot of them. I, yeah I, when, when Mitch was first diagnosed, we, we were fortunate to be connected with a mom who had a type 1 diabetic child. and we were of course stunned and she sat down and talked with us about what to expect and how to make and it just made us feel, I, I guess less alone because we yeah. felt very alone at the time. yeah and Mitch you know did too. But I remember one of the stories she told me was about when her child was first diagnosed, she was buying uh, she got every blood monitor te- uh, glucose monitor that she mm-hmm. could and then she was buying uh, strips wherever she could find them online yeah. and she, because she because the insurance she said if she was buying them, Outright, the insurance wasn't covering it at the time. Right, Uh, it was going to cost more than her mortgage to do the test strips that she needed for her son, so she could know where the where the blood sugar was at.
1: Yeah, that's pretty common. I mean, honestly, I think you know insulin. Of course, is a the cost of insulin is a really big issue, um, and we absolutely need to lower that. And I know that there's a bill going through Congress right now um, addressing that. But you know, I think that at the same time, we really have to talk about the cost of glucometers and test strips. Um, I think one of the things I, I spoke to you about a little bit was how I just injected blindly for so long. Mm -hmm. You know, I just had to guess based on how I was feeling, you know, do I feel like I have a high blood sugar? Do I have a low blood sugar? You know, and I could get into the ways that I could tell, um, but really, it was incredibly dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, I could, I could have accidentally killed myself at any moment, right? But there was no way to afford those test strips. Absolutely none. And, um, insurance really rarely did cover them. And, um, this was before the time when we had prescription discount cards too. Mm-hmm. So it was just like, you know, you pay $200 for, um, two vile little tiny things of test strips that had 25, 25 in each. Them. Yeah. yeah. And that was how much you paid.
0: And if you're doing the testing right, you're testing
1: eight yeah. times a day. Eight times a day. Yeah. They they say ideally six to eight times a day. Yeah. So, And if I was lucky, if I got my hands on a vial of them, I'd test once a day just to be sure. Just to make sure. Yeah.
0: And, and the, the technology has advanced quite a bit. I mean, you know, they have like a, a, a glucose sensor that will yeah. feed to the pump. But again, this depends. They're expensive. They're costly. And it all depends on... Insurance and the kind of insurance, and whether you have the means to cover your deductibles and things like that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, right now we just started new insurance, and um, I (laughs) I have to pay my whole deductible up front before I get any of my pump supplies. And um, I think I told you this, I had um, met my deductible pretty early on last year. So, you know, I, I was able to just get all those pump supplies I needed at like pretty much no cost. And so, you know, I saved up a bunch. So that's okay for now. But I, I have to like really consciously save every month and put aside money so that when I do need to place that order, I can pay the $2,500 I need. Mm-hmm. And that's just for three months of supplies.
0: Yeah, so. $2,500 for three months of supplies.
1: Correct. And that doesn't include insulin, test strips, uh, glucometer, nothing. That's just um, pump reservoir um, and sensors and the thing that the things that you have, yeah, and and
0: that talking about rationing, that's another thing that on the pump supplies, yeah, um, that people try to extend the life. You're supposed to change that out every yeah. three days, you know, three days, and people extend it to five or seven, they and that do. can lead to poor insulin uptake at the site. Yeah, can lead to infections. Mm-hmm. Uh, lot, lots of bad things that happen.
1: Yeah, and so, that's so common. I mean, it's it's not. None of this is uncommon. And I think that what's uncommon is that people don't really talk about it yeah. um, because we're all struggling with this and we've all done it at some point, I think. Um, and yeah, that, that actually happens because it's so incredibly expensive. Yeah.
0: So, ta- we ta- talk a little bit about, well, we're talking about insurance and we're talking about, um, you know, you have to pay $2,500. Uh, upfront to meet your deductible before you can start getting you know discounted rate right on your pump mm-hmm. supplies or everything mm-hmm. but what does the world look like and we've touched on this a little bit but if you don't have that insurance I mean what does the world look like for a diabetic
1: oh god without insurance yeah without any
0: insurance at all
1: <laughs> I mean well I've lived that life um, you know because when I was an adult uh, living with a pre-existing condition prior to the ACA, uh, there was n- absolutely no way we, I would get insurance. Um, but with the, the type of insulin and stuff and the pump that I'm on now, I can't even imagine. I mean, that there's no way that I could make enough money in a month to afford to stay alive. And I mean, I'm lucky enough to be married too. And even with my income combined with my spouse's income, there's just no way it would take every cent that we had. Um, because you know, with, <laughs> without insurance, I, I didn't, I think my pump supplies alone are like $6,000 a month. Mm -hmm. Um, my insulin without insurance, um, Oh, what did I look at it? It was something like $1,500 or more. I think it was more than that a month. I just switched insulin. So I can't remember my old one, I think was closer to 1500. Um, so, you know, we'd have to be able to um, – we'd have to be making like a quarter million plus a year, and then we'd still be broke.
0: Because it would all be going – It would all
1: be going to that, yeah. you know. Um, that's not including test strips and stuff either because those things are really expensive. And if you have a CGM, I mean, I don't even want to get started on that. That's, that's a monster of a cost, you know. Even if you get the over-the-counter freestyle mm-hmm. um, CGM, that's $75. That only lasts 10 days. Yeah. So –
0: yeah, and it, yeah. and and it the 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 big the better the technology, the higher the cost. But mm-hmm. but but also the better the management. Absolutely. Right? So one thing I think we see with diabetics is that they don't have insurance or they can't afford. They're stepping down to the lowest level of, of solution. Yes. Right? So that instead of doing an insulin pump because they can't afford the supplies, they're probably going to old school syringes mm-hmm. and. Loading it up out of a vial of insulin that they keep in their room. Right.
1: Well, and that so the thing is, too, I don't know if you hang out on um, type one groups on any of the forums or whatever, but a lot of times people will be in there saying, you know, hey, I lost my job. I lost my insurance. Um, I can't afford my insulin. I'm obviously not allowed to ask for free insulin on this forum. But can somebody point me in the right direction on where to find it? And a lot of times what people end up doing is going to Walmart and buying their cheap, cheap $25 a vial insulin that is no longer really used for, um, type one diabetics. It's stuff that people use on their animals. Uh-huh. Um, and stuff that like type two diabetics might use, but they don't even prescribe it as a therapy anymore. It's the mo, it's the kind where it's like gotta be an absolute apocalyptic emergency. Yeah. Right. And, um, the dosing on that. I mean, how would you even know? Yeah. You know, it, it's impossible. Um, and that's where people are at. You know, it's either $50 a month for something that is not really going to do anything, but. Um, but
0: it will keep them alive. Barely. barely. But yeah.
1: But yeah. But yeah, just keep you barely living.
0: One, one thing on this that I want to talk about, because I, frankly, uh, when I think about my son, uh, I'm sometimes amazed at how well he functions in everyday life. Because I understand it to some degree, not firsthand, but um, what happens when you have a low blood sugar or a high blood sugar? It affects everything about it. Affects your energy levels. It affects your cognitive skills. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's another thing we don't talk about enough is that. It's a struggle every day for a diabetic to just do the normal things, right? And and make it through the day. Yeah. It's much harder for them than it is for a healthy person. It is
1: because you know we, I mean, we have this constant underlying thing where we have to always know what our body's doing. Mm-hmm. We have to be perpetually aware, um, because if it goes, you know, haywire one way or the other, you're you're in trouble for the next couple hours. So if you get a low blood sugar, um, which is going to be, you know, a lot of people, they feel differently, but I usually, I can handle myself until about 75. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I start getting into the 75 zone, I've got to really think about eating something and sitting down and taking a break. Um, But it's challenging though, because once you get low, then you have to be very careful about what you eat. Your body naturally, you just want to like consume anything that'll get that blood sugar up as high as possible. Um, because it literally feels like you're dying. Like mm-hmm. you, you cannot move. You have no energy. You're so dizzy. You can't see straight. You're sweaty. You're shaky. Um, you can't really walk very well. It, you know, depends on how low you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you may not wake up if you're sleeping, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so typically my go-to is juice because that just hits you real right quick. Right. And then I follow it up with a protein. Um, but the thing is, right after that happens, your blood sugar is going to be up and down for the next couple hours. And that is just a journey that you don't want to go on yep. um, because it effect, It really does truly affect the way that you can think um, how well, you know, you can um, handle simple tasks. Um, you know, I, I even get a little like weird about driving sometimes if I've had a really severe low and I'm like, Oh no, I got to get on the road and go to work. Well, I need to take some time before I do that because I need to make sure that I level out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as far as the high blood sugar goes, you know, on the opposite side of the spectrum, I usually start feeling pretty crappy around like 180, 190. That is so different than back in the day where I could like handle myself in the 300s because what choice did I have, yeah. right? Um, but, you know, at this point, I once I start hitting that level, I'm like, oh, no, I start feeling gross. Um, You know, my muscles start feeling really tight, like they're pulling at each other. Um, I get real bad headaches. My mouth gets extremely dry. Um, I get very tired. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, you get very tired with lows too, Mm -hmm. but I get very tired with highs as well. Um, It Just the brain fog is not really describable when it comes to that. And then depending on the type of insulin you have, um, depends on how quickly that's going to come down. So I'm currently on ultra rapid, which is amazing. Um, Very expensive though, but it brings my blood sugar down in about 15 minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, previously with regular um, rapid insulin, which they call rapid, but to me doesn't seem rapid doesn't seem anymore, rapid. would take about 30 to 45 minutes. And then you talk about the older stuff, like the Walmart stuff mm-hmm. um, that I was talking about, that usually takes about an hour to an hour and a half to bring it down. Um, and so you're just sitting there, you know, waiting. When am I going to feel better? Mm-hmm. Right. So. Um, yeah, and it's very difficult. And you have to, you know, once, the, once you come down from that high, you got to make sure that you don't go low. Yeah. You know? And when you go, and it's just a roller coaster. So the technology that we have nowadays that, I I mean, I just got on a pump about two years ago because I was so afraid I wouldn't be able to afford it, um, which is still an issue. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, and then the pump, I don't know, but I think the last one we got from Mitch was around $6,000. Yeah, it's
1: super expensive. And, um but you know, I without without this technology, I don't think I would be in the baseline range most of the time, because it's so difficult with multiple daily injections to really keep up with it.
0: Yeah, and the pump does a better job because you can set that right. You can say, I, right. want, I, I want to be between eighty and one hundred and thirty, right, all the time, and you can set alarms that'll say, yep. hey, you got to do something. You're headed this direction, yeah, uh, and it and it helps a lot. When you were talking about the highs and lows, the the and I want to see if this happened with you um, because it's happened with Mitch. There's a thing that would happen where if he was going along and he was having trouble for a week or three or four days where his blood sugar was like in the 300s or even the 200s and it Mm -hmm. was like steady there and he'd keep trying to bring it down. Once it does come down even to normal levels, he felt... Like he was having a low.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that happens. I mean, when I finally started getting um, my blood sugars under control, once I had access to insurance and therapies, I felt like my blood sugar was low constantly. Um, and I was just in the 180s, you know, 200s. And I was like, oh, no, like, I feel like I'm shaky and I need to, you know, no. And my doctor was like, just ride the wave. You'll be back to normal in like six to eight weeks. And I was like, takes that long? Yeah, yeah,
0: it does. It, that's the thing, and that sensitivity to where your blood sugar has been uh,
1: is is yeah. remarkable. Yeah, and that's and one of the I mean that's one of the things about getting sick too. And I think a lot of people don't know about this is when a diabetic gets ill, our blood sugars are high the whole time. Yep. I mean, and I don't know what it is. I, I haven't really looked into the science about it, but um, from my understanding, it's a reaction to our our body being ill. I think normal people. Probably their blood sugars are a little elevated too. Um, But when you're sick and you're trying to deal with those highs, it's impossible to get them come down. I mean, because your body's like, no, we aren't doing that.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that because that any kind of illness of a flu or we just, you know, the COVID stuff is particularly dangerous for diabetics. um, Because if you're there with a fever and your body's cranking into overdrive to try to do that your blood sugars are up and very little can take care of it. Or on the other side, if you, if your blood sugars, if you get to a place and you're not eating, you know, then you have that. Yeah. And you, and you can get can ketoacidos-
1: ketoacidosis. I mean, and that's one of the things too, like, even if your blood sugars are, here's the other kicker, like you could have totally normal blood sugars, but you're not eating. You're going to go to ketoacidosis and so that's diabetic ketoacidosis. You're going to wind up in the hospital because you're expressing ketones into your urine which means your body's not processing any of the sugars your blood sugars could be totally on target Mm -hmm. but if you're not eating your body's not using any of that and it's just like okay so can you win no i mean it it seems like there's no win it's it's, really hard
0: well that's what i mean that like there's a certain amount of mental energy every day in the life of a diabetic that's spent thinking about things like this.
1: 100% of the time. And, and and
0: most of us don't have to do that. Right. But the people who have to deal with this, it's every single day. And kind of going back to like teenage, and we talked about this a little bit before too, it, it leads to that frustration, particularly in teenage and early adult years. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a dangerous time for diabetics because they sometimes just say, I'm tired of this. Yeah. I don't think it's fair that I have to deal with this, and and it leads to some bad outcomes. So it Kids does. just say, I, I'm, "I'm just not going to do this. I'm going to hang out. I'm going to be a little normal kid, normal teenager, normal twenty-year-old, twenty-one-year-old." Yeah. Um, did you experience any of that?
1: Um, I did. I, you know, I didn't get really severe. Thankfully, I had a pretty good support network of um, friends and, and loved ones who really, you know, kind of pushed me through that um but i i can't you know i can't lie it was definitely that feeling was there constantly um and it leads you into bouts of depression too Mm -hmm. um which is
0: common with very common
1: and blood sugars can even affect that yeah i mean that can even bring it around um and so yeah i mean absolutely you know there were there were days that i just wanted to be done with it all um especially because i was like well i can't afford this crap anyway what am i doing here you know is it worth it and Um, I actually lost a friend um who was who had type one diabetes about uh twenty years ago. And um he he was in the same situation as I was, right? Um, but he he was homeless at this point because for him it was between, you know, paying for insulin to survive or having a home to live in, Mm -hmm. right? And he chose the insulin. So he was couch surfing a lot and he stayed with us from time to time. And, you know, I mean, we'd always be there for each other and be like, Hey, I got some spare insulin, you know, um, do you need it? And that was great and everything. But I mean, he essentially just gave up because he was so tired of fighting and he was so tired of having to live that life and he didn't do anything wrong. He worked full time. Mm -hmm. You know, he had gone to school for a while, um, had to drop because there was just no way to do it all. Um, you know, and he, he literally, he was just tired and he, um, he didn't take insulin for about a week and then he was gone.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. so sad. I, but you understand, I mean, it's yeah. easy when you are close to it, it's easy to understand how it happens because it's exhausting and the thought of having to dedicate so much of your day every day to this thing and worrying about whether you're going to be able to afford it mm-hmm. or worrying about what what your life is going to look like five years or 10 years from now if you things take a bad turn and you don't have access to insulin and you can't afford it. Right. It's, it's a, I know that it's a common, the depression is a common thing with diabetes Mm -hmm. because it's just overwhelming.
1: It is. Yeah. And it, it takes a lot to kind of, you know, be equipped to deal with that. And I take that for granted a lot. I probably shouldn't, but I know that I've done a lot of work on myself. Um, you know, emotionally, um, to be able to handle that. Mm-hmm. But I see so many people who just aren't, aren't able to do it anymore. And it, and it puts so much stress on, on them and their lives and their loved ones. And, and it's, it's really tough because yeah, thank you for mentioning that. It's, it's incredibly hard yeah. to think about it all day, every day. Yeah. You know? It's, it, it's so much.
0: Now you, you lost a friend, but you, you and I talked to your, your dad who was type one diabetic also died at a young age.
1: He did. Yeah. How, how old was he? My dad, Kevin, um, he was 47 years old when he passed away.
0: And I think you had explained a little bit that he he got it. He was nine when he got it. So you said this was in the 1960s, and the management techniques were a lot different. Um, so through his life, and I think bouts of time without insurance yeah. as well, um, just didn't, didn't manage it the way we would try to manage it today.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, I think I remember him telling me that like one of the first insulins he was on was the, the animal insulin, um, the animal based insulin. And it was just, you know, you took a couple of shots a day and it wasn't based on carbs or anything. It was just, you just guessed, yeah. you know, um, the glucometer technology was really difficult. I think for a while there, they just had urine strips. Uh-huh. Um, they couldn't even test it through your blood yet. Yeah. Um, so it, it changed a lot. um, You know and i think that his family my grandparents really tried to help him manage it and they did everything they could within the technologies they had available um but you know going back to the depression and the struggle and the constant having to think about that you know that weighed on my dad a lot and especially because he now had a daughter Mm -hmm. who had type 1 diabetes too and knowing that he was unable to provide insurance um or proper medical care and so it was tough. You know, he and I would share vials of insulin. Um, uh, we would do what we can. We rationed everything. Um, you know, we would be very careful about what we ate or didn't eat mm-hmm. um, just to make sure that we had enough money to afford our insulin. You know, we'd say, okay, this is how much insulin we have left. We know how much it costs. We know how much we're going to take over the next few days. You know, this is how much we can eat or can't eat, you mm-hmm. know. And... Um, and that led to him having a lot of complications and he, he really sacrificed himself uh, for me thinking about it. Um, you know, he, he died. Ultimately he died of a heart attack. Um, but when, when they did the exam, they found that he had a lot of different complications from living with type one diabetes. That was um, as they like to put it uncontrolled type mm-hmm. one diabetes and um, not without trying. I, I hate that label. Um, because it seems like we aren't really trying to control it, you know.
0: Yeah, it sort of puts the onus it, on the patient. It
1: right? really does. Um, but that's not that was never the issue. It was just doing what we could to survive, mm-hmm. you know. And so, yeah, he had quite a few complications when he passed.
0: We, can we talk about some of the complications that happen? When yeah. You, when you, when your diabetes isn't treated sure. properly. Yeah. Um, I know there there are circulation issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people get in neuropathy and, yeah. and that's, you know, you start to see like uh, fingers and hands and toes and feet get amputated because yeah. um, what, are, what are some of the more common issues, the long-term issues that we see from untreated uh, di- diabetes?
1: So that's one of the bigger ones. Actually, I think the circulation issues are really the top um, and it relates to just about everything in your system, right? Um, then we move on to issues with the eyes. Um, I currently, like I've been diagnosed with diabetic retinopathy and glaucoma. I'm only 41 years old. Um, and I know why. It's because I couldn't treat myself, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, the way that your blood sugars um, go up and down and are so un- unregulated um, causes all these little contractions in all of your blood vessels, right? Right. And it's a whole systemic disease. So it affects every part of our body, our organs, our circulatory system, our eyes, our brain, um, you know, our, our bones, everything, digestive system. Um, so that's one of, you know, one of the other complications you can have issues with metabolic syndrome, um, where your body doesn't really process your foods as, um, as it should. So you can have some nutritional deficiencies, um, you can gain weight, like I have. You know, I've gained quite a bit of weight since actually my blood sugars have been better. Um, back to that again, but you know, it well, that's can. A,
0: that's a seems like an unfair.
1: It really is. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it really is. But, you know, I mean, that's I always say, like, when, when you see a chunky type 1 diabetic, you know, they're a healthy type 1 diabetic, basically. Yeah. But with that comes other complications, too, you know. And so, I mean, the list of complications, it, it almost seems endless. Like, it, it's really systemic. And um, it just depends on how your body reacts to the highs and lows and um, how you're able to treat them. And then... Um, how your body processes that in the long term. So, um, so far, my eyes have been the biggest. The worst. Yeah, the biggest issue.
0: And one of the issues, if I remember from the early days and the, the the fire hose of information that comes at you when you're first dealing with this, the uh, the sugars when you're experiencing highs and the sugars actually kind of they're like a log jam in your circulatory system, particularly in the capillaries, which is why the extremities suffer the most. Kidneys, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of kidneys. Oh yeah. I can't believe
1: I forgot about kidneys (laughs) because I take an ACE inhibitor every day. Um, It's actually a blood pressure medicine, um, but I take the lowest dose. And so they prescribe that as something called an ACE inhibitor. And what that does is it's supposed to protect your kidneys, um, other organs, but kidneys specifically from long-term damage from uh, diabetes and I've been taking that super cheap medicine so I could afford that over the counter. I've been taking that since my mid-20s. Wow.
0: Yeah. And bl- and you mentioned blood pressure. That's another thing. You absolutely. Pe- people with diabetes end up with, uh, blood pressure issues. I mean, yeah. Way earlier than oh, we would expect.
1: Absolutely. Actually on that, um, I, I like keep remembering more stuff. So like <laughs> my, with, um, both of my pregnancies, I ended up getting preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. And, um, my first pregnancy in particular was terrifying because first of all, I was 21. So I was like, whoa. Yeah. Um, this, you know, pregnancy you know, kind of challenging anyway. The normal
0: young mother pregnancy right. fear and concern.
1: Those normal things. But then, um, you know, I was, I was seeing a high risk specialist, um, because one of the only times I could qualify for healthcare at that time was being pregnant because Medicaid would ensure pregnant mothers, right? Um, and so I was seeing a high risk specialist and they said, well, you're, you know, you're pretty high risk for preeclampsia or your blood sugars or not blood sugars, blood pressures have been really high and we're concerned about your kidney function. And, um, I ended up, um, I, like the swelling was unimaginable. And, um, I had to have an emergency C-section with my son because I was a, um, I was so close to just going completely eclamptic and, and really suffering some serious complications. And. I was super well-controlled. My A1C at that time was in the sixes, and I'd never seen that in my life. Which is excellent. For people it is that don't
0: know, excellent. five is ideal. Yes. Um, if you are anywhere near a five, you've done fantastic.
1: Yes, but sixes after, like, not being able to treat yourself forever, oh, my gosh, I was just elated. But even with that, I mean, it was pretty it happened. to happen. Yeah.
0: Okay. And one of the things we talk about, and I, I think it's important to, to make sure people understand, is that people who, who don't have health insurance and people who can't afford proper treatment, or ideal treatment, I would even argue, yeah. um, throughout their life, end up with just an insane amount of medical needs later on in life. and yeah. There are tons of complications that I, I would argue probably end up costing the public more far more than if we would, uh, and we, we talked before we started recording about, you know, you you, you can end up uh, with people needing to be in nursing homes because they've yeah. had several amputations and they, you know, they can't see and then now they can't take care of themselves. So now we're on the, we're the right. public's on the hook for, yeah. for that. We, we're, we're taking, we're paying for these things on the back end a lot of times.
1: It's so common too. Yeah. Um, in my work in medical social work, I came across this quite a bit as well, you know, Um, uh, a lot of my clients, my, um, I had some clients in their fifties and so that's not even old, right? I mean, I'm 41 for God's sake, but I was in my thirties at the time. So this was probably about a decade ago, but, um, they, I mean, they were already winding up in nursing homes because of the complications from untreated type one diabetes. Mm -hmm. And there was, I mean, same story. We shared the same stories. We would sit in my office and just go on about how crappy the system was and, um, how they, you know, they were forced into this position and now they're filing for disability um, and having to go to a nursing home when they just really rather be working mm-hmm. and living their life like they used to.
0: And with proper treatment, they could.
1: Absolutely. But that's
0: the thing. It's not yeah. a, with proper treatment. It's not a debilitating disease.
1: A hundred percent. Not anymore. Not it anymore. It
0: used to be no matter what. Yeah. Um, one of the first things I did when Mitch was diagnosed was about this book on the History of diabetes because I nerd do things like that. Yeah, know that's um, great. But, but read the history of the development of insulin. Um, it used to be that getting uh, diabetes was a death sentence.
1: Absolutely. And yeah. You
0: got it as a kid, and all parents could do was watch their kids slowly die, in, in one of the most agonizing ways. Moms would try to give them water and food, and to no end. Yeah. Um, so then mm-hmm. we develop insulin. And the doctor who did, and I believe it was Toronto. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Sold the patent for insulin for a dollar. A dollar. Because he felt like this should be basically a thing that the, for the world to have. So right. that parents didn't have to go through this. Kids would have to go through this. Um, but I think it's it, one of those things that with proper treatment in today's world, it's it these people with di- diabetes will thrive they'll do fine absolutely and they can do anything anyone else my son did bike across kansas with me twice yeah um so it takes management it takes testing sure. but you can do it um but it requires the ability to treat it
1: it does and i mean that and i think that that's one of the the nice things about this generation coming up um since you know a lot of states with our exception of course have expanded medicaid and then we also have the aca as you know a backup of if somebody can't um get employer insurance and employer insurance is required to cover it now and so our pre-existing condition has to be covered and we have to be offered treatment as expensive as it is right it still costs us thousands of dollars um the ability to receive care is there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's changing the game for a lot of people. I think you're going to see, um, type one diabetics living well into their eighties and nineties at this point. Um, I don't know how long I've got, um, but I'm going to make the most out of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, uh, if I'm lucky, <laughs> no, I won't even <laughs> say it. I was going to say something about student loans, but maybe if I'm lucky. Um, but you know, I mean, and I think that that's, that's really vital, but in order to make sure that that's truly accessible to everyone, mm-hmm. we have to lower the cost overall of all treatment. And I mean, you know, there there's just no reason not to. Um, this is this is an epidemic, and we know also. You know, a lot of studies have come out um, saying that the the COVID pandemic is actually triggering type one diabetes in a lot of people now. I don't know if you've read anything I about that. Seen that. Yeah, because yeah. you know we we know that type one diabetes is triggered by um, an a infection. virus or an infection, yeah. and they're saying that uh, there's there's been an uptick in um, in diagnoses of type one diabetes and children specifically who have had COVID. That
0: makes perfect sense though, because it's a over overly aggressive immune response Correct. that ends up damaging the pancreas. Yes. And, and so if you have something as virulent as COVID in a child and, and then there's that immune response right. and one of the things is if your body is wired for an autoimmune disease, it's gonna. That it's information just is already coded there. Yeah. Right. Um, you you had touched on something uh, earlier that I think is really important to to pause and highlight on. Prior to ACA, there was no requirement that somebody with a disease like this could be covered. Correct. Right? They they. It was totally discretionary. Absolutely. And and an, an insurance or an employer could say. That's too much. It's gonna it's gonna throw our rates through the roof. Yeah, and and that would that would apply for diabetics and cancer patients. Mm-hmm. And I remember the old days when I was a kid, and and but the kind of kid who would listened to conversations I probably wasn't supposed to sure, listen to same. Like about insurance and whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, and I remember my parents talking about that, and other adults talking about it. This was in the heyday of HMOs. Oh right. Uh, and so then there was a lot of uh, what would I want to say. Uh, There were very flexible definitions about what was a pre-existing condition and to the point that I remember conversations about people didn't want to go to a doctor for this thing because it would show up then on your file and Mm -hmm. if you were thinking about changing jobs anywhere in the next year or two, you would not be able to get insurance because this would show up and they would say that's a pre-existing condition. Right. Exactly. Pregnancy. Yeah. Pregnancy Pregnancy
1: was one of them too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was so, there was a laundry list. I mean, like a very long list of different um, conditions and uh, yeah, diabetes was one of them. Cancer, pregnancy. um, I think that uh, MS, um, you know, anything, anything you could think of a broken toe, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) Um, But yeah. And, and that's, that was, I think that was the worst part. One of the, I mean, I, I love the ACA for a lot of reasons. I got really upset with the way a lot of changes went through on it because mm-hmm. I watched the bill as it went through Congress. Um, I think that, you know, we need to keep still working on it to make it better and, and more, you know, make more accessible programs and, and everything for people. I mean, I'm in favor of universal health care, so I'm super left on this one. But, you know, with that said, I think one of the most important parts of the ACA was the pre-existing condition clause. Yeah. Um, if that wasn't their insurance companies could still do whatever they wanted
0: well and, and exactly and the thing is is if you look hard enough or you live long enough you're gonna have a gonna pre-existing condition right that's we're, right we're a weird mix of biology and genes and uh, cells and something goes wrong at some point for everyone right so yeah we're all gonna end up with a pre-existing condition so I think it's definitely been one of the more popular parts of that yeah I, a couple of We'll we'll kind of wind down, but a couple of last-minute questions here. Um, Well, I want to come back to your dad real quick. Sure. You said something I think uh, I want to expand on a little bit. Um, Your dad probably didn't treat himself in his diabetes to make sure you had at least something, right? Yes. Yeah. And and, uh, do you think about that a lot, about...
1: I mean, not anymore. I try not to because it makes me really sad. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I do. Um, I thought about that a lot, especially around when he died, actually. Um, because I knew that... I'm going to, like, tear up a little bit. I'm sorry. Um, but I knew that he sacrificed so much to make sure that I was able to get through it. And um, and that, <laughs> that was his life. Yeah. You know? And he was a single dad, too. So he... Like, literally devoted everything to us. And, and you know, he had his own issues, as parents do. Um, it wasn't the easiest childhood, but he, he worked his ass off to try to make sure that, you know, I would survive and that I wouldn't have to suffer. Um, and I think that he did a, a pretty good job, I mean, for the most part, you know, as <laughs> as well, as, well as, as he could do. You know, I'm still mouthy and stuff, so he didn't get that out of me. but. <laughs>
0: But he got you to adulthood and yeah, got you he to did. a place where you could take care of it yourself. And yeah. I remember when when my son was first diagnosed in this and I, we were kind of working with him on different things. And I remember there was a conversation at one point that said, I'm not always going to be around and I need to know that you can do this Yeah, if I'm not here.
1: Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I mean, you know, not all of the things he, he taught me about living with type 1 diabetes were the best. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were definitely the things that helped me survive. You yeah. know? I mean, like, we don't we don't really want to ration insulin. But if you're going to ration insulin, you might as well know how to do it. Like, we don't want to have to uh, live without, you know, um, food. Like, nutritional food. Or whatever. But if, if you're going to have to do it, you need to know how. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just to make everything stretch. Um, yeah. It, it's... I mean and and he literally yeah he he did all of that just so that I could live and he knew that he would die young doing so mm. So. Well, I appreciate you talking about that. Yeah, thanks. I know that. And Sorry you, I got a little you, teary there.
0: You guys on the when you're listening you can't see it and uh, but but there there it was upsetting. <laughs> I feel a little bit bad but also I think it's important no, to Cuz I made bad. you cry but
1: No, um, no, but, you didn't make me cry. But, but but it's I think it's
0: important for people to know that. I mean yeah. this is what these are the sacrifices that people make and and that's another thing it's not uncommon the autoimmune thing is genetic. So yeah. if if there's a diabetic and I had a friend that I used to work with and I think his daughter. He was diabetic, and I think he, his daughter ended up diabetic. Um, but if you have another kind of autoimmune disease, it's kind of that because one of the things with Mitch is they said, "Does anybody in your family have diabetes?" We said no, but then we started looking. There are autoimmune diseases there, right? And once you start figuring out that that's there, then, then you see, yeah. Um, and it's 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 the things that. But to know that people are actively uh, Actively sacrificing themselves to make sure their kids are okay is overwhelming.
1: Yeah, and they used to say that it skipped a generation or something, right? But we found out pretty quickly that wasn't the case. case. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) so So,
0: certainly not in your house.
1: No, definitely not. And I keep a pretty close eye on my kids too. I've Mm -hmm. had, you know, every time I take them in um, for their annual physical, I make sure they get their A one C checked. I you know, if they're like feeling especially thirsty, I'm like, why are you so thirsty? Yeah. You know, <laughs> like.
0: The thirst is the thing. I, we, we talked about that, about how we, yeah. we, didn't, we didn't recognize. when After we Mitch got diagnosed, the other thing is the bathroom. We haven't talked about oh, this. Oh, yeah. We figured out uh, only through talking to Mitch after the fact because he had hidden it from everybody. Yeah. He had worked out this very elaborate system at school to be able to go to the bathroom in between every single class. Yeah. Because you have to go to the bathroom constantly.
1: Constantly, I mean, and I was like, "This is a little bit embarrassing," but oh well. Like I, when I was twelve, I I like wet the bed, and I was like, "What is happening?" Like I know how to get up and use the restroom, but you have no control over it. I mean. The amount of times you have to urinate is insane. Yeah. yeah, it really is. Yeah, that was the other thing too. I used to, when my kids were babies, I'd be like, "How many wet diapers are normal? Like, are they peeing too much? Yeah. <laughs> like, what's happening?" Because
0: when you have it, you you're kind of looking for it all right? the time, you're thinking, "Okay, yeah. this is you know a thing." Um, why do you think we haven't really taken care of this from a healthcare perspective yet? And that's a big, and there's a it lot is. of moving parts, and I get that. But yeah, um, but is it is it a lack of information? To, is it what we talked about earlier that diabetics Mitch is hiding around and not telling anybody the things he has to do? You're hiding and saying yeah. I, I'm going to go sneak in a in a dark corner somewhere and drink orange juice so nobody mm-hmm. knows what's going on with me. Or? Yeah,
1: I you know what I do I think that that has a lot to do with it. I mean, we could get into the policy perspectives and the, the issues with um, pharmaceutical companies and. And health insurance and you know profits and losses i think we we talk about that a lot right and and that's something that absolutely has to be addressed um first and foremost but i think that um we have a hard time addressing it because as type 1 diabetics we just kind of like don't want people to really know that we're so different um you know it's
0: exhausting talking about it it is
1: too, too yeah because there's so many different facets right and like where do you even begin and we're sitting here talking about it exhaustively and it feels wonderful that you actually understand what I'm talking (laughs) about. So I don't really have to explain it as thoroughly as I need to, although I am, but, um, it it is, I I think that that actually might be a big part of it because we just really, we really do. We, we don't want to talk about it too much, you know, and it's not like out of shame. I don't think for most of us, I think it's just out of like, God, this is another thing that I have to do. I mean, we already have to, you know, call our insurance companies probably once a month, mm-hmm. you know, we have to talk to our doctors once a month, we go to our doctor's appointments, you know, every couple months, we've got multiple specialists, we've got all this stuff, we're always doing stuff for it. And and it's hard, because you just want to be like, come on, just can we have this one thing? Yeah. But when you tell your whole story, and, and, and it's a big, long story, and there's a lot of different aspects to it, it, it can be tough. And, yeah. and I don't think that people really understand the the gravity of it, you know, and how difficult it is for us. So, yeah, I mean, I absolutely think that more of us need to be out there shouting from the rooftops and saying we are tired of living like this.
0: I, I agree, because even though it's a fairly widespread disease, it's it it's the numbers are relatively small, though, compared to the overall population and, right. and everything. And there's a lot of attention paid to it, but but if you don't have to live with it directly, it's very easy to just. Yeah, like say well I don't I don't get it. I don't know about it. Yeah. And I think that I've I've always felt that that's kind of I always think that storytelling and exposure to another person's experience is the best way to get people to understand. Yeah. What's really
1: going on? As a social worker, I 100% agree. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. And you know, I mean that that's kind of one of the reasons why I'm excited to have the platform that I have now as a state representative as well. You know, um, this is not something I really like sought to do, right? right? Um, but it's it's something that I felt like it was a calling because we don't have a lot of people like myself in a position uh, like this where we can really uh, use this to help others you know, vocalize um, some of the issues that we've been struggling with, you know.
0: I think it's very important to have people like you here who bring that perspective and bring that experience. Yeah. Um, because if you have a building full of people who have no experience with that, it's right. easy to dismiss it. Yeah. You know, but the more people who bring, you know, your the the, the experience you've had with diabetes, being uninsured and understanding that, and trying to, to get people to understand, like this is what the reality is for, yeah. for people in this situation. Uh, so I'm I'm very glad you're here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Tell me, well, kind of along these lines. E- either I'll give you an option. One thing that people don't know about diabetes that you wish they knew, okay. or as a legislator, um, if there was one wave your wand as a policymaker, and one day they gave you all the power um (laughs) what would you do to try to advance this issue
1: wow okay those i mean those are really two choices aren't they um i'm gonna go the policy one so but this is gonna get a little deep though because i you know i could choose well i just want everyone to just expand medicaid and make universal health care but it's not like that I, I would, um, wave my wand and give everyone the ability to have the empathy to really, um, to put themselves in the shoes of other people, no matter what we're talking about, right? Could be healthcare. It could be, um, food insecurity. It could be housing. Um, I would wave my wand and I'd be like, get some empathy in that cold little heart of yours. <laughs> <laughs> and and really be able to see the full picture of what people are living through and, and dealing with every day so that we can start creating policy and laws that directly help people instead of demonizing people who have um who have a lot of financial struggles due to the hand that they've been dealt. You know, so I think that's probably what I would do. And I wish that I had a wand that would do that. I
0: want to find a wand to give you. I wish (laughs) if I had one, I would give it to you. I would wave it all over the place. a pretty good idea. I like that a
1: lot. Yeah, but, you know, ultimately, I think that we really, I think that we need more of us out there um, fighting for this and and really making our voices heard and and showing people that there is a face behind this. And and, um, there's families that are affected every day. And you can't ignore us. Like, we're here, and we're tired. Yeah, yeah, very,
0: very. And our blood, and we get cranky. Our and we get cranky, higher.
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> High or low, so, yeah.
0: Well, thanks for agreeing to come on and visit with me today. You. This was great, um, and, it, and you're right. It's nice to talk with someone. I, I hope when I go back and listen to this that we didn't stay in the too technical, familiar area <laughs> uh, for listeners, but it, it as someone who's had this as part of my life for the, the last over a decade yeah uh, it's it's nice to sit down and talk with someone who understands it
1: firsthand well, i'm happy to do that anytime and if if your kiddo ever wants to call me well i mean i guess he's not a kiddo anymore he's like a grown adult but you he's know wants to? I, that's true if <laughs> he ever wants to reach out um bounce any ideas off or um you know just to kind of vent i'm happy to do that too
0: that sounds so, great well yeah. thank you yeah. i really appreciate you coming on today thank you I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son, Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast and Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison arts and culture collective and salt city sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Salt City Sound Production.